It's a new series. Daniel. Um, how we do our, our series here at the church is, is kind of we, we, um, we get together as staff, we pray about it for the week before we fast and pray, and we say, okay, what does God have for us? And, and we're always like six months to a year out, and we're praying. So last year, it was last fall that uh, Daniel came up, like over and over, like we're going to be studying Daniel. And it's something, quite honestly, that I hadn't spent a whole lot of time in since Bible college. And so I had a whole year then to learn on it. And so I've been a year studying in Daniel. I will tell you, Wow. This talk about a timely book. I've been so excited. Like after about six months ago, I was like, I want to preach it now. But no, I had other things that were important to preach then. But, but you guys, this is the first day that we're getting to it. It's amazing and uh, uh, hopefully encouraging. Now we're taking it from obviously it's a very deep book and it's a it's a, a, a prophet, um, one of the major prophets. And uh, there's a lot of different ways lenses that you can look at. And what I, I was looking at is saying. How do we have a respectable faith in a hostile age, <laughs> right? Because that's something that's a, when, we, when you look at the book of Daniel, as far as something being very practical for today, boy, does it talk about this. In fact, it's part of in there and some of the, the themes in the book. In fact, today's memory verse kind of talks about that, one of the first keys of how to have a respectable faith in a hostile age. And it comes to us from Daniel chapter 1, which we'll be talking about today, verse 8. And this is kind of a key passage in that chapter. And so every week we memorize a little passage of Scripture for all our Ravencrestors. And it's not hard, don't worry, it's, it's easy to do. So all you do is you say it along with me, and then I'll take away words, at letters, and then pretty soon you'll have it. It's amazing. So here we go. It says, But Daniel resolved himself not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, Daniel 1.8. I'm going to try to read. So... Uh, Okay, say it again. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Daniel 1.8. It's powerful. Now you say, what does that have to do with my life? Oh, trust me, it does deal with your life. So we live in an increasing uh, hostile age. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, so it was one of the reasons why I took it from that thing. Uh, perse- Christian persecution is global and it's growing. Um, it's not just that more Christians are being persecuted, it's that uh, more Christians in percentage-wise are being persecuted, like at an extreme rate. In fact, I um, found out through Voice of the Martyrs, they said that in 2016, 90,000 Christians were martyred. 90,000. Let that sink in for a second. 90,000. That's, that's genocide on a, on a scale that we just can't even hardly even comprehend. That was just last year. It, right now, in Egypt and Syria, our brothers and sisters of faith are facing true genocide. So to the point that uh, the government, the U.S. government, because of petitions by Christian groups, the government has recognizes, yes, there's genocide, but refuses to do anything about it like they will do for other things. And the U.N. has been brought to the U.N. The U.N. recognizes that it, the Coptic Christians, the Christians in Syria, this, this true genocide. And they say, yes, it's genocide, but as of yet, no teeth to be able to defend the Christians. It's a hostile age. That we live in globally, not just here, but here in the United States, we, we have a lot of, I mean, obviously we're here today, we're not worried about anybody killing us, but our culture is becoming more and more hostile, resistant to our faith. We've seen, at least in my lifetime, um, I've seen a freedom of religion being held as one of our most deeply held uh, uh, American values turn into the freedom from religion, and that becoming one of the most deeply held American values and uh, we have things like, uh, they're public things, like the, uh, you can't display the Ten Commandments in public. You know, when I was growing up, we had them posted on our school walls and chiseled into the side of the school building, and, and now they're gone. And there's other things, like nativity scenes at Christmas time. 
You know, we used to have those up and say, well, this is why we have Christmas, because a child was born. But now you can't do that. That's not okay. We're seeing that faith is slowly being removed from culture and out of everyday life. You're not allowed to talk about it at work. You're not allowed to talk about it mostly within family. You're not allowed to talk about it at all. It's becoming uh, something that is faith is something that we're trying to remove from culture. It makes people uncomfortable, and so we're just removing it. We have things like this. Um, when I was, uh, uh, my, my mom, I actually remembers, when they stopped praying in school. When the court said, talking to God's no longer something that the government can protect as far as saying this is freedom of religion or expression. You can't pray. Um, and so we have not just not praying in school, but then praying in public. And uh, we see that more and more. Now, still, as a private citizen, you can, but you'll be facing more and more resistance. I don't know if you've noticed that. When I was a youth pastor, uh, we used to do this thing called See You at the Pole. And at first, it was widely embraced, and then it was tolerated, and then it was resisted. And you can legally do it, but it's getting harder and harder. In fact, there is a, a guy that I look up to a lot. His name is Joe Kennedy. He's a football coach in Washington State. At least he was, because he was fired last year, because after the games were over, after, not during the games, after the games are over, people are leaving, he goes down to the 50-yard line, takes a knee, and praises God for the fact that he gets to coach this wonderful sport called football. And somebody got upset by that, because one of their kids might look and see a man praying and contaminate them, and so he was fired. And it went to court, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said, wait, that man's wrong. Because he gets $200 a month to be able to you know, invest hundreds of, of hours of his week with our youth, uh, he doesn't have the right to pray because he's on the government paycheck. That's resistance. I don't know if you noticed when our country first started, it started with prayer. And now we have removed. So we are seeing something, we're seeing resistance beginning to build. It's an, an increasingly hostile culture to faith. Senator Feinstein recently made headlines because she decided that anybody who was Catholic shouldn't be a judge <laughs> in a court of appeals or a, a, a judicial nominee. Uh, she was grilling this nominee um, as to whether or not they should be uh, given an appointment. Said, you know, you're Catholic and I'm afraid that your dogma will uh, make you not uh, suitable to be able to serve. So somebody who has faith can't serve according to some of our senators now. It's, it's increasingly hostile. Right, anti-Christian discrimination is happening in schools. Uh, we have higher education. Uh, 2012, so it's a couple of years ago. Department of Labor Statistics uh, says that fewer than five percent of faculty in in public and Ivy League colleges are conservative Christians. That means Christians that believe that the Bible is actually the inspired Word of God. Less than five percent, though we are a much larger proportion of society than that. By the way, in fact, uh, we find that. That conservative Christians aren't underrepresented in the schools as far as professors, but also amongst the students that uh, disproportionately are made up in Ivy League schools. There are far fewer Christians than there are in population, though conservative Christians typically have high grades, right, and also have a lot of volunteerism <laughs> because that's part of our life, things that usually these schools would look at. In fact, we also find that that same, uh, actually Pew Research did a study and found that 8 out of 10 conservative Bible-believing Christians lose their faith, abandon their faith while they're in college. So all of you that are in Ravencrest, be warned. It's not an inviting environment. Why would 8 out of 10 lose their faith? That tells you something about the environment they're going into. And it's strange because most of those schools were started as bastions of Christian thinking, right? There's an anti-Christian bias in just in education, but also in media. 87% of, of 
portrayals of Christians, uh, according to Pew Research, are negative. So anytime a Christian shows up in a Christian or a, a movie or a TV show or a commercial or something like that where they're a Christian, it's a negative bias against them, saying that their Christian is either stupid, they're bigoted, or they're, uh, or they're evil in some way. Uh, and so obviously that has a saturation effect uh, amongst culture that we're seen as more increasingly a negative part of society in our media. Uh, to the point that even Google's HR pulled and then retracted a statement where they said conservative Christian beliefs are inconsistent with open tolerance policies, which should concern us. Something else we find that there's an anti-Christian bias also in politics, not just in media. Uh, we, have, uh, we are called anti-choice, not pro-life, which I think is interesting because we actually believe that a person should have choices and we should know exactly what those choices are. But no, the words that are using to describe us are uh, Anti-choice. Freedom of conscience is being, protect, uh, is being uh, uh, protected for lots of people except for Christians. So if you're a baker and you have somebody tells you to, to bake a cake for slaughtering children, you have to bake that cake now, apparently. The thing is, is that you can't, freedom of conscience is no longer valid for us. And so we have, in fact, a Supreme Court case coming up pretty soon about a, a baker who decided that he wasn't going to bake a cake, something that violated his conscience. Um... We have things like this, that historical Orthodox Christian beliefs are now being codified, not just here but in other countries, as hate speech, because we stand against the new immorality that is being portrayed as morality. And if you don't agree with that, then you are hateful. It's becoming an increasingly hostile culture. You know, how do we respond to that? Because how we respond is critical. Oftentimes you'll hear somebody go up and, and, and tell you all of these facts. The next thing that they tell you to do is something that I think is totally unbiblical. Sometimes it's about getting angry. We're going to stand up against those bad people. Right? We're going to get mad. But I don't find that in Scripture, just the anger. Because the anger, if they say you're just a hateful, angry group, and then we respond with anger and hate, we're only proving their point. Some other people will come up and they'll say, hey, these are the facts, this is where we are, and they'll say, oh, this is what we need to do. We need to abandon this world. This world is godless and it's awful, so we need to cloister ourselves in the holy little communities and let the world just, just go on its own path. But that's against the Great Commission. Jesus didn't say, go when the world is friendly. He said, go. And you know what? A lot of those first century Christians, they went and they didn't come back. But the gospel kept going. So that's not a solution. Or do we become afraid? Do we kowtow to culture and say, well, it's enough? We're afraid, and, and so we'll just stay quiet, and, and we'll get out there, but we won't cause any trouble? Is that the solution? We are disciples of Jesus, and Jesus made ripples, didn't he? Jesus changed the world, and he called his disciples to change the world, and we are disciples of Jesus that make disciples of Jesus. That's who we are, and that's what we are. So that is not an option. How we respond to the culture we live in matters, and that is why I'm so excited that we get to study Daniel. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn it to Daniel chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a lot of them in the back, and so you're welcome to use those. If you need a Bible, keep it, our gift to you. If you're using one of our Bibles, go on page 613, by the way. And as you turn in there, here's some things. Daniel, it was written in the 6th century, right, B.C., so think about that. About 600 years before Jesus, five, 600 years before he comes, that's, that's how old this book is. And yet it's still relevant today. In fact, scary relevant. It was written at a time that, that Israel was, was on the decline. 
It was the, the northern kingdom had already collapsed. The southern kingdom was, was not doing awesome. It was falling into moral decay. Godlessness was on the rise. That's the culture that this was built in. The book of Daniel, interestingly enough, is divided into two major segments. The first one, the chapters 1 through 6, is kind of tells the stories. It sets the scenes. The second six uh, are these prophetic things that, that, that Daniel saw that deal with really crazy, cool, very accurate prophecies that help build our faith. The first six are written in Aramaic. For a long time, biblical scholar, or critics were saying that prove that Daniel didn't write these things because it was written in Aramaic. And that means that there were two different people that wrote these different books. Except for archaeologists found out that guess what was the spoken language and the, and the most common language amongst the ancient Babylonians? Aramaic. And if he was a high official like he claims to have been, this is naturally exactly what he would have written it in. I think it's interesting that he wrote the second tap, the uh, the, uh, the prophecies were for the Jews. And so those were written in Hebrew. It's pretty awesome. It's an amazing book. You know, he was a contemporary with the, the prophet Ezekiel, whose writings is right before these, if you want to read two guys that were kind of together on this. Daniel was taken into captivity, and eight years later, um, Dan, um, Ezekiel followed him into captivity. They would have known each other. In fact, Ezekiel writes about Daniel several times. In fact, he says, if, you were, if you're holy, like a couple different guys, one of them was Noah, the other one's Daniel, <laughs> several times. You could tell you what kind of guy this man was. The main purpose of this book, as we go through it for the next six weeks, we go through the first half, then we're going to take a break, we're going to do the second, the, the, the prophecies after Christmas. Uh, the main thing that you're going to find is, is the Messiah is coming. Jesus came. And the people needed to know that. And that hostile age, that's the main focus of this book. The Messiah is on his way. God is showing up. And you know what? That is still a very true message. He came and he's coming again. Something else that we find is like the the verses 1 through 6, the main focus is God's sovereignty is seen. Right? We see God's sovereignty in in actual real life events. In in humanity, in politics, not in, in closets and stuff like that. Not just in people's feelings, but in real life, in real world events, you see God's sovereignty at work. The second four, six is God's sovereignty is foreseen. You see God's sovereign saying, listen, I don't just control today, I control tomorrow. I control the future. It's everything's in my control. And that's what the prophecies begin to show us. And the first six chapters, we find that the focus is that God's sovereignty is experienced. That it's not just something for the, for the next. We can actually in our life experience God's sovereignty, his power, his provision, his wisdom, his direction in our life today. Second six is that God's sovereignty, his, uh, his sovereignty is expected. We can trust him. If he is at work today, we can also trust him for tomorrow. These things help us to create a balanced view of how we respond to a hostile environment, doesn't it? So, let's begin. Verses 1 and 2, it says, In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put them in the treasure house of his God. Now, a couple of things I want you to see. The first one is look at God's sovereignty in there. Here's a real time and real space. Okay, we have this thing in the third year. The Bible doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen in imagination. It happens in the real world. That's one of the things that why I'm a Christian. This is real. And it tells you exactly when it took place. And our God is a God of the real. That's why he identified himself as I am. It happened. And then it said, 
that God delivered Jehoiakim of Judah into Babylon's hand. It wasn't that Nebuchadnezzar did it. God did it. God is sovereign even over the difficult things in our life, isn't he? God's sovereignty exists. Now, when did this happen? It was about the third year of of King Jehoiakim was 605 to 604 BC. That was the time period in our calendar that was there. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt and Assyria, and they had a coalition to try to fight the the, uh, the Babylonians. So what happened was, you used to have these big kids on the blockade. Israel was kind of in the middle and wasn't all that powerful. And you had, south of them, you had you had Egypt, and Egypt had a big army, and they were powerful. And then to the north, you had the Assyrians, who just, you know, a generation earlier, that killed and took off the northern ten tribes. So Israel was like, I'm not sure I like the, the Assyria all that much. We're a little afraid of them. So what did they do? They created trade alliances with Egypt, where they used to be held as slaves, right? And then they, they have these trades. Well, all of a sudden, Babylon shows up, and they become powerful. They had been there for a while, but nobody cared about them. All of a sudden, they got powerful, and now they were big trouble. And so Assyria and Egypt, who used to be at odds with each other, they decide, well, we have a common enemy, so let's, let's join. And so they did. They had created this, this coalition, and they were going to be these two big armies, and they were going to go and stop Babylon. They were going to stop them in their tracks. So they march up to Karshemesh, and they go and they have this battle, and they get defeated. I mean, not just a little bit, like bad. Like, like there is a, there's a big room where they write the story of this, like how bad it was. Like it was, it's historically bad beating. That's what they took. And so what happens is, is you have Egypt gets beat so bad. The Assyrians, or the, the, they, they rough to the side and to the east. And you have, Babel, or you have Egypt is run south. They go right down the coastline, all the way back down to Egypt, right? Because they're like, ah, don't kill us, Babylon, right? That's what they're doing. And they get stuck down south. Now that leaves, if you go from the north to all the way down to the south, where Egypt is, there's, there's Israel in the middle, and now Babylon is at their city gates, and Nebuchadnezzar was not too happy that, that uh, when that, uh, the king of Israel decided to align himself with such a loser as uh, Pharaoh Necho. So he goes up to, to teach them a lesson. That's what happened. And he goes up to Jerusalem and he says, I own this. This is basically what he's doing. I own you, king. And he actually, we find out in 2 Chronicles or 2 uh, yeah, Kings also that uh, he leaves him there for about three years until uh, Jehoiakim becomes stupid and tries to rebel. But you have him, he says, I own you, I own this space. And so what does he do? He takes the things that are most precious, the implements of the temple. He takes the things that are holy and makes them not holy. Now think how defeated you are as a people when the very things that you think, these are the implements of, of how we become right with God. Those are the very things that get taken. You can't have your ritual sacrifice. You can't, like, he removes that from them. He takes the thing that they regard highest, and not only does he remove them, but he brings them to the temple of his God. Now that's, that's pretty bad. Did Marduk, their great God, did, he, did they beat Yahweh? Because it seemed like that at the moment, didn't it? That would really be a blow to your faith. If you were an Israelite and you see Babylon march into your city, march into your temple, take the holy implements, and then take them back to his pagan god, wouldn't you maybe think maybe their god it might be stronger? There are times in our faith that it looks like the world is stronger, right? There are times when this world comes in and it seems to be winning. And it seems like God's not defending His holiness. And this world is taking the holy things of God and defiling them. 
And it doesn't seem like anybody's powerful enough to stop it. And those are times that it's really difficult to hold on to our faith, isn't it? Those are the times you wonder, God, why don't you just show up? You killed the Egyptians years ago in the Red Sea. Why don't you show up now? But sometimes God doesn't show up because he's got a bigger picture. And that Daniel shows us that. But in the, in the moment, it's hard to be a believer in a hostile time. And I think we can understand that a little bit. The holy things of God in our culture are continually being taken away, aren't they? I mean, think about, think about even like Sunday. It was a day that Christians set aside and said, we're going to worship God. This is for you. And Sunday now is, jap- I mean, it's got all kinds of stuff. That the world says, nah, you don't need church. You're going to do this on Sunday. And we take our holiness and we set it aside into secular things. And we see the culture do it. It's hard. It's a bad time to be in Israel. Overt hostility can shake our faith. Uh, if, if God is the God of reality and the God of real history, then you wonder, why didn't he do this? Why did God step up? But it gets worse. Verse 3, it says, Then the king ordered Ashphineus, chief of his court officials, to bring the king's service uh, some of the Israelites from the royal family of the nobility, young men without physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick of understanding, qualified to serve in the king's palace. And he was to teach them... The, uh, the language and the literature of the Babylonians. So the royal youth then are also taking his tribute. And why would he do that? Well, he's taking their religion, now he's taking their future. Right? Let's take them, not just any kids. We want to take the ones that are going to be the young. They're young, so they're impressionable. Right? You take old guys over there, they're going to be like, we resist. But the young ones are like, well, it's not so bad up here. Right? And don't just take anybody, take the influential ones, the ones that are royal, the ones that have money, that have position, the ones that are smart, that, you know, are, can be able to convince other people, the ones, you know, that, that are good looking, because we all know that if you're good looking, it's easier to convince people of things, right? That's why when you turn on the TV and there's a commercial, it's not usually some ugly person telling you to do something, right? So that's what he gets. He going, he's going to steal the future. And what does he do? It's systematic indoctrination. And, and you know what? It, what does he do? He says, we're going to teach them how to act Babylonian. We're going to teach them to speak Babylonian. We're going to teach them to think Babylonian. And we're going to, in that way, with these boys, these influential guys, when they become more Babylonian, they're going to go, other Jews are going to look to them and, and be like, that's the future. We want to be like that. It's powerful. You know, they're, Babylon, we can look at them and say, ah, oh, it's so evil, you would do that. Pretty much every culture that's ever been an, an imperialistic nation has always done this because it's effective. It works. I mean, even here in the United States, we did that to the, the Native Americans. Right? We had schools. We went to them. It was a thing. We would say, kill the Indian, save the man. Right? And that was compassionate because we would say, the world's changing. If you want to be able to continue to work, we, would, we took their children voluntarily, brought them into our schools, taught them how to think and act like, like the rest of Americans, and then brought, sent them back to their villages. It's not just us. It's all of societies that have done this throughout history. This is an effective plan, and Babylon's using it against the people of God. Is it effective? Yeah. And so he's going to use a carrot stick philosophy. This is how we change culture. This is how it works. And it wasn't just Babylon against the Israelites. It's just conquering nations against the conquered people. 
you have to stick. You conquer, you separate, right, from the past. So you remove the religion, you remove them from their past, you remember all of that, you remove their identity, and then you give them the carrot. You say, being part of our society is better than being part of yours anyway. This is the way of the future. It'd be more comfortable being this way. And the idea of the carrot is to assimilate, to absorb. And so we adopted identif- uh, this culture. Verses 5 through 7, we, we see that the, that the king was going to do that. It says, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine at the king's table. This would be like a big privilege, wouldn't it? For most people that are conquered, just to not be killed was kind of a privilege. But then to get to eat with the king, you're like, ooh, this is a big deal. You get to eat there. And so the king says, hey, you're going to eat like me, right? You're going to talk like me. You're going to think like me. And so they were well-trained for three years. And after that, they went into the king's service. How long did it take Jesus to take fishermen and turn them into disciples? Three years. Seems to be something cool about that, helping to change a person from one thing to another. And the king was like, three years. I can take these Jews and I can make them Babylonian in a very systematic approach. And that's exactly what he was going to do. So that's what they wanted to have. Um, And not only did they become Babylonian in their thinking or their training, right? They wanted to think that way. They wanted to eat like Babylonians, have the culture, but they also changed their names. In fact, we find that they changed their names. It was interesting. Hananiah, which was one of the four that we find that was taken, his name means the Lord is gracious. Look what the Babylonians changed his name to. Shadrach, which means command of Aku. Aku is a moon god. So I think it's kind of interesting. The Lord is gracious, and they say, nah, maybe God wasn't so great. The Lord is so gracious to you. Now you are a servant or a slave of the moon god. Congratulations. Every time somebody says his name, how about Mishael? What is who God is? Goes to Meshach. Who is what Aku is? They just replace one with the other. They're like, no one is like God. And then they say, no one is like Aku. That's what he, every time he hears his name, that God has been replaced in his life. Or I got this one. It's, uh, Azariah, the Lord has helped, goes to Abednego, servant of Nebo. Right? Another one of their deities. Uh, it, in fact, it was the god of speech and writing and of water. I think that's an interesting kind of thing. Nebo was a busy dude, apparently, in the whole demigod thing. Right? But they say, all right. God helped you? No, no, no. Nebo, who's going to help you with speech and writing. He's the one that's going to help you become all these things. That's who you're a servant of. They try to give them, they strip them of their identity and try to give them a whole new, even name. And Daniel, of course, God is uh, my judge. He becomes that the, uh, he says, Belshazzar, may Balak protect. And then, of course, this one, of course, the name of the book, and it would be the best one if I could tell you exactly what is meant by that. Scholars disagree. Some of them are like, well, Balak is really going to uh, one of their, it means king, one of, like a royal person like that. And so it means, may, like, God is your judge? No, Daniel, the king's going to be the one who might protect you. He'll be your judge. Right? Others say, wait, no, 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 it's, it's about their God. And so it's one of their, uh, Balaam, and so uh, may he protect you. Others say, no, 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 it means that may, Daniel, may you protect the king. Like, God was your judge, and you were supposed to serve him. Now you're supposed to serve the king. I don't really think it matters. I think what it means is this, is that they're taking his name and they're reversing it and they're applying it to somebody totally different. The wrong God. Do you see that? Carrot stick is effective, isn't it? It's super effective. In our culture, we find that same thing happening now. It's not new. It's been throughout history. You ridicule and oppose beliefs. That's the stick, right? And then you limit, you outlaw any type of expression for those beliefs. And we're finding that, of course, with all those stats that I taught you at the beginning. 
we find that you can vilify then. Vilify Christians. Call us fundamentalists, which I think is hilarious because that just means you stick to the fundamentals. Like if you call my football team fundamentalists, I'll give you a high five because it means I'm coaching well. All right? But if you're a Christian fundamentalist, you actually believe what the Bible says and you're fundamentally Christian. And that's bad, apparently. Extremists, they'll call you that. They'll call you a bigot. They'll call you any, a phobic of all kinds of things. They come up with words to be phobic of for now. I've been called so many things. Um, marginalized Christians, there's other ways that they do it. You marginalize Christians, you, you take away their leadership. Their Christian leadership, and you, what you do is you hype the primes that, that Christian leaders fail because guess what? Every Christian leader is still a human, and we're all going to fail. But make sure everybody knows when you fail. Make sure nobody knows when you succeed. That's, that's how you do it. And not only that, then create different leaders that are more appealing, that you, that you maximize the times they succeed and marginalize the times that they don't. Do we find that? Yeah. But then, you don't just use a stick, you use this carrot, right? You want to seduce. So you make it bad to be a Christian. Have you ever felt ashamed, like you go to something and people are like, oh, you're a Christian, and then it's not seen as a good thing? Yeah, I tell you, when I was first a pastor, and I first became a pastor, people were like, oh, that's really great, you're a pastor. And then, after a while, it was like, okay, you're a pastor. And now, like, if I go golfing or something like that, and people know, like, I'll be hitting, we'll be getting along, right, we'll be, because I'm a horrible golfer, and I make everybody feel good about themselves, it's my service to the Lord. And, <laughs> and so, I go and I do that, and then eventually, it always comes up, like, what do you do? And I hate that question, because when the, what do you do? I'm a pastor, and then instantly, conversation stops. And then, like, what, I'm still a human? I'm still the same guy. But, you know, they'll walk on the other side of the fairway and all kinds of crazy stuff. Sometimes it's difficult to be a Christian. It is. And so what we want to do is not just use the carrot, but the stick, use a carrot. We want to make it easier to not be Christian. We want to reward you for walking away from your faith to taking a new identity. So we do that, like in education. Think about this. Uh, Oftentimes, indoctrinate with secular thinking, teaching theories or our worldview as as the undisputed only way of thinking and anybody who thinks different than that well we shut that down and it's not just an education they do that that just happened in google right it's in our world or how about in media we're going to celebrate secular beliefs somebody who stands up for for secular beliefs that are contradictory to traditional bible-centered beliefs somebody who stands up are, is now labeled a hero a hero and anybody who stands up for what is moral is labeled as a bigot or a narrow-minded person or backwards. So if you want to be good, you want to be celebrated by society, guess what you need to be? Give them the carrot. It's easier. There's less resistance. So in our music and our movies and our celebrities and our social media, we're going to celebrate things that are contradictory to the ways of God. And we're going to make you feel good about that. So how do we overcome that? How do you overcome this carrot stick? Because it's worked throughout history, not just with the Israelites in, in Babylon, but it's worked out throughout history. And we're facing it today. How do you overcome it? Daniel did. That's why it's so darn hopeful. <laughs> All right? So read here um, Daniel 8 through 12. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid the Lord my king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would think that I have, uh, um, the king would have my head because of you. And uh, so then he goes on and says, Daniel said to the guard, um, the chief of the official they appointed over Daniel, 
of Hananiah, Mishael, and Ezra. He said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the other young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what you see. So he agreed. And at this, he tested them for 10 days. I think, what a powerful way of being able to stand against this. Right? So the first thing we, we see is that Daniel remembered who he was. We have to remember who we are. And what do I mean by that? Well, why didn't Daniel draw the line in the sand somewhere else? When I say, I oppose your education, your indoctrination. No, because Jews can learn other things, right? And Christians, we can learn other things. We don't have to stand opposed to the universities and schools and things like that. It's okay. You, you can be a Christian and learn other stuff, right? And you, it, the Jews could go and learn other things. They, it was fine. Jews could live somewhere else. He wasn't anti-Jewish to live in, in Babylon. That was fine. You know what it wasn't okay for Jews to do? Eat not kosher. Because kosher had way little to do with nutrition. It had way more to do with holiness. And holiness means being set apart. It means who I am. Right? So the rest of the congregation will know this illustration, but it's effective. Holiness is like your toothbrush. Right? It's holy unto thee. It's set apart for you. Right? You don't let anybody else use your toothbrush unless you're weird. Right? <laughs> Right? If somebody else uses your toothbrush, it's defiled. It's no longer holy. You have to throw it away. Right? It's used for a specific thing. It's holy. You, as Christians, are set aside. You're different. You're not better, but you're different. Right? And the Christians need to realize that we, we are different. And that's what, <laughs> that's what the whole kosher law was about for, for the Jews. It helped them stand aside. Be different. And the first thing they remember is who we are, that that, uh, Daniel said, wait, I'm a Jew. And so therefore, in verse 12, it says, it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. It wasn't that the food was bad. In fact, the food was probably really fantastic. But he couldn't eat kosher. And in a violation of who he is and his holiness. And he remembered that. And he said, that's the line. I'm not going to cross it. I'm not going to. You can call me anything you want to, but I know who I am. That's why he drew the line there. And so the issue was identity, not diet. And even though the king's food was a privilege, he had to step away from that privilege. And how he did that had to be very smart. Because if he stepped away the wrong way, it could have been very bad. Right? I mean, think about it. If you step away, the, the king says, wait, I didn't kill you. And now I'm letting you at my table, and now my, your, my food's not good enough for you? That would be really bad for him and his family. How he proceeded had to be wise. And I think for us as Christians, we realize that we have the same thing, right? And we are Christians. Most things in this culture we can do. In fact, according to Romans 14, there are some people who can do more than others as Christians. We have more liberty than, than others, and we have less liberty than some other Christians, but we can do most things in this culture. But there are some things that violate our holiness that we cannot do. We have to choose our battles carefully. I think it's important to realize that Daniel didn't say, you can't change my name. You can't call me by a pagan god. He was like, that doesn't make me sin. You already believe in that pagan god, and I don't. He chose his battle carefully. He went to the thing that I cannot do. And then he responded appropriately. How we respond matters. And just as much as Daniel, if he responded poorly, bad things would have happened. We have to respond correctly or bad things are going to happen. How often are Christians maligned because we deserve it? Because we respond poorly to our culture, we pick the wrong battles, and then we respond in poor ways that don't represent Christ well. Well, that's on us. 
We need to respond well. How do we respond well? Well, starting in verse 8, the first thing we do is Daniel shows that he had resolve. How you respond first is you have to have some level of conviction. There's a level of resolve. Daniel, at some point, he saw this and he says, I can't do that. No matter what, I can't do that. Whatever the consequence is, I can't do. That's what resolve is. There has to be a level in our life that there is a line in the sand that we will not cross. And we would say, no matter what, I won't do that. You call me anything you want, do anything to me that you want, but I will not cross that line. We have to make sure that line is where God draws it, by the way. But there has to be a level of resolve. It's not going to be easy to be a Christian. That's okay. Know that. Resolve to be a faithful person anyway. Say, I will not give up my holiness anyway. Resolve. Next thing is, so faithful or or, uh, respectable faith starts with the resolution. If you don't have resolution, no one's going to respect your faith. They're going to say, you call yourself a Christian, but you live like everybody else. No one's going to respect you. You're going to be a a laughingstock. Respectable faith starts with that resolution, but it also, it continues, it goes on. It it also, um, it goes with respect. Daniel respected these people. What did he do? He asked this official. He said, um, hey, I got a problem. Is it okay if I don't defile my God <laughs> by eating this? I mean, I know this is great food and all, but this is, this is it. No, the food's great. Um, is it okay if, if, I, if I don't defile my God this way? You're going to have to be able to respect. You can't just demand. Now, had God not shown up, all right, and Daniel was then forced with saying, like, if it didn't work and he was going to have to either eat the food or die, I think I know what Daniel would have chosen because there's a line he wouldn't cross. But he starts with respectfully approaching those in, that are in charge and saying, you know what, I've got concerns. And you know that most people that aren't in faith aren't just big meanies that are out there to just bully you. They're, most of them are actually pretty nice people. And if you just go to them reasonably and say, hey, I've got a concern here, a lot of times they'll listen to you. But here's something cool. It wasn't just that those people listened to him. <laughs> look at what it says there. Uh, it says uh, in uh, verse 9, Now God caused the official to show favor and compassion. Who caused favor? God. That's sovereignty in real life. It's not up to you. You get it? God is in it with you. And God was there. There were times that God didn't have that, then God showed his sovereignty in other ways. But I'll tell you what, when we're faithful, God's there. It's like this whole idea. We can trust him. And you know what happened? Daniel made this request in a very wise way, in a good way. You know what happened? He was denied. Does it ever happen in your life where faith doesn't, like, you do something, you say, the Bible says to do this, and I do it, and then bad stuff still happens? The official says, well, you can't do it? Well, that happened to Daniel, and, and Daniel's persisted. And I think that you have to have that, this faith is, has got to be uh, persistent. Our faith, it can't be something that, well, it was, I tried, I didn't want to cross that line, and I tried, and then, and then they said no, and so I guess I'm just going to have to not live according to my conscience. Not an option. Sometimes we have to be persistent in our faith and say, even so, he addresses the concern again, and he says, all right, I'll tell you what, let's set up a thing. I'll eat vegetables, and if I'm eating vegetables and water, I'm just helping with these guys then your concerns are, are met, right? He listened to the, the guy's problem and said, I can, I can address these. It wasn't un- unreasonable. The, the, the guy who made them eat the, well, wanted to meet the, the unkosher food wasn't being mean. He was just like, I want you to be healthy, so I stay healthy, right? And Daniel said, fine, give us 10, 10 days. How bad can we look after 10 days, right? Let us eat vegetarian. We're going to have vegetables and water. If we look just as good, we're good. And I'm sure that the official thought, excellent. Because after 10 days eating vegetables, this guy is going to be gaunt and awful looking. We know what slaves look like. And that's where faith steps up. 
right? God had to step in. And so I think there's a great miracle right there in the beginning. You can eat a vegetarian diet and still look good. That's a miracle of God, <laughs> right? This text. Okay? But I also think, understand this. Daniel ate vegetables. It takes sacrifice. Daniel didn't demand he, from that guy, say, bring me the kosher food. I'm a Jew. I'm supposed to be eating with the king. Give me my kosher food. He didn't do that. He said, I will take less. And as Christians in our culture, there are times that we are going to have to voluntarily take less, not get what we deserve. We have to say, I can't participate in that. And you don't need to make up more stuff to make me comfortable because it's sacrifice. And we have to be okay with this. Jesus, I think, showed us a way of sacrifice. And I think that his sacrifice topped anyone that we can do. So we don't really can't be whiny babies. And we have to say, okay, if I have to deal without meat, I'll go without meat. All right? And then he invited in scrutiny. You see, he said, test us for 10 days. Take a look at us. See, Christians have to be open books. We've got to be saying, look at my life. I'm going to not do those things you tell me I have to do to have a good and fulfilling life. And now you can look at my life. We invite scrutiny as Christians because respectable faith is a faith that has accountability there, right? When the world can see that God makes a difference, it helps them say that God makes a difference. And I think in the end, we see in verse 15 that Daniel is vindicated. It's a pretty cool thing. It says there at the end of the 10 days, he looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men of the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. You know, that's kind of like a bittersweet victory, isn't it? Like, yes, God showed up, but now I have to eat salad the rest of my life with water. That's the way it goes. Sometimes a Christian life needs to look different. I think it means the thing that God shows up and he's vindicated. And when he is, then you have to have consistency. When, when people in our life say, you know, what, if you live this way, right? And I, right now, a big thing that I've been reading a lot is uh, the whole idea of open marriages and sleeping together before you get married and all that kind of stuff. How good sociologists are saying that's good for us. As Christians, we say, I can't do that, right? Marriage means something and I'm going to have to stick to this. And society is telling us right now that doing that is bad for us. And I think we have to be able to say as Christians, I'm going to forego, <laughs> thank you very much, the rest of this, <laughs> these things. And you can look at my life and my marriage and how I treat my wife and how my son is. Go ahead. It's going to take consistency. We're going to have to stick with it. Verses 17, we'll get some good stuff here. It says, uh, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning and Daniel could understand visions and all kinds of dreams. So it's not just that Daniel remembered who he was. It allowed him to make that, that stand. But he also remembered whose he was. He's God's. So I think that's the second thing that we sometimes we forget. We say, I'm a Christian. I'm not going to do these things. We forget that we're actually owned, that our God is real, and he's sovereign, and he's powerful, and he's working today. Like, things falling apart today are not outside of his understanding. Right? It's part of his plan. And he called you in his plan to be here today doing great things. And so what happens? Well, then Daniel's blessed. Those four young men got all kinds of success. You see, Daniel belonged to God, not the state, and so God blessed him, not the state. Pretty good. See, God gave him knowledge and understanding and success. Did you see that? Sovereignty. You've got to be here at Bible college. You want to learn? You guys here that are at church, you want to. 
God is the one that helps us. We're faithful, and God is also faithful. If it's not a two-way thing, then our faith means nothing. But if you want to experience God in real life, you have to include God in your real life. And he'll show up because our God is faithful. There's a final exam that happens, verse 19. And I think for us, we kind of gloss over it because we don't have the emotional impact of it. It says, uh, at the end of the time, the verse 18, the, uh, the king was to bring this into his service, and so the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. Now, after three years, there's a big final exam that these guys would have. And if they passed, then they would live. And if they failed, they would die. And if they were like, oh, you get like a C, maybe the king will make you live and you'd have like a mediocre, awful life, right? But if you, got, if you failed and you didn't do well, he might kill you. And if you did really bad, he might kill your family and everybody associated with you. Because he's the king and he could do that. So there's a little bit of stress, right? You're three years you're learning this stuff and the king's going to grill you and you don't know what he's going to say, right? You talk about being nervous. And these guys walk in there and they're like, okay, well, we've studied all these years, all this other pagan ideas and all that stuff. And they go in, what happens? Well, it says, the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the king's service. And every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's a big final exam, isn't it? God shows up. Don't forget who you are. God is real, and he will make a difference in your life. When you need it, he will step up in you. You've got to be faithful. Remember that it is the power of God that overcomes this world, not your intelligence, not your, not your might, right? It's not your righteousness. It's his. And God is amazing. That's why we're not afraid of this world, and that's why we don't have to cloister ourselves, because God is with us, and he is doing great things, right? God can move mightily even in resistant cultures. In fact, he can do some pretty cool stuff. And in every one of these chapters, even in this first one, we find that the secular world begins to see the power of a sovereign God. And if it happened in Babylon, it can happen here. And it does. And then we see that God gave him success for a long period of time. Did you read that last part? A lot of us think, oh, he stayed there till the end of Cyrus's, till Cyrus took over. Do you know what that means? That Daniel continued to stand even when, when Babylon itself went under. Like Daniel's success outlasted the nation of Babylon. That's pretty good. The nation that took him from his home says, we're going to try to make you like one of ours. Daniel actually literally outlived it. That's success. That is overcoming. And we are called overcomers for a reason. 35 years he was in Babylon. Then he's in Persia. A lot of evidence in the Bible seems to suggest he actually got to go back and see some of the walls be rebuilt in Jerusalem. How cool is that? It's a story of a man of faithfulness, and it's also our story as well. So what do we do with this? How do we grow in our faith? How do we, how do we begin to, to practice these things of remembering who we are, what God has for us? Well, I think we have to start with the fact is realizing we live in a hostile age. That's okay. Don't expect the rest of the world just to embrace you because you're Christian, and don't get mad at them that they don't, right? It's just the world that we are. That's why God, in his sovereignty, knew that, and he placed you here. You're awesome. He placed us here now for a time like this. So we are not afraid. We are emboldened because we know God is with us. But it's going to take resolution. 
A respectable faith starts with this. We say, I will live the Christian life. I remember who I am, and I remember whose I am. It is by faith that I will live, and it is by faith we will conquer. It is by faith that we have the privilege of seeing God overcome. And that's amazing. The next five weeks, we're going to talk about the stories of this man, and not just him, but his, his associates, and the ways that they built their faith in that culture. And time and time again, we see that the kings of this world and the, and the culture of the world recognize how awesome God is. And we will be seeing that here too. Because our God is a God of real space and real time. He is a God of real life. And so it's awesome. So how do we, how do we take this next step? Well, I encourage you, the Bible says don't just hear the word and do nothing. So every week I try to give you something to do. So you have your connection card, you can take it out. On the back side, there are some challenges I'm going to give you. And you don't do all of them, but I'm going to say this. If you're here today and you heard the word and you're not doing something about it, you're doing it wrong. Okay? I wasn't here just because I love to hear myself speak. Here's the first challenge I, I challenge you to commit to is this. Memorize Daniel 1.8. You already have the memory verse card. You already got it started. This one's an easy one, but it's powerful. That was the moment, right, that things changed. That was the moment, 1-8. Maybe you need to choose in your own life, I, ch- I resolve not to defile myself with the king's food and wine. And you know what that is. And maybe you don't yet, but I'll tell you what, this, pa- this passage, it tells us how it's done. So maybe you need to tattoo it on your heart. Maybe you need to spend some time with it and ask God, Lord, where, what is this king's food and wine, <laughs> Right? Lord, give me the courage to resolve, but it starts, we need to know the word, so memorize it. Maybe that's what you do this week. Say, I'm going to set this, and this is how you do it. Every day, you go back to it, and you say it over and over again, and think about what it means, and pray about it to God, and say, God, how does this apply to my life? And I'll tell you, that verse won't just become something that's here. It'll become part of your life. It's, it's awesome. It's transforming. Maybe the second thing you want to do, something else, is actually read Daniel chapter 1. Granted, I read it for you. I know, but it's more fun to read it in your own voice, in your own head. So read it. There is so much in this that I couldn't get to. Read it. Or maybe this week you say this, I, I'm going to resolve not to defile myself. Maybe there's something in your life right now, you know it's the king's food and wine. You know that doing that is not part of being a Christian. It's, it's not consistent with your beliefs. You know that. And maybe today you say, I just have to have the resolve. I'm choosing that. Let me know that because I'll be praying for you this week and, and, and supporting you. If you need more help, then you just let me know. But Maybe that's where you start. Make your faith in the real world, just like your God. How about this? Maybe what you need to do is attend the next five weeks. Maybe you're going to say, you know what? I know that there, God has something for me, and I want to be able to, to embrace a, a respectable faith in this culture. God gave us this book for a reason. You say, I, I want this. And you say, I'm going to come back. I'm going to make a commitment to this, and I will be back the next five weeks, and we're going to learn how to do this together as a church. Because God does great things that way. Or maybe God, the Holy Spirit's in you right now telling you to do something different. Let me know. As a pastor, I love to, to be able to help. And it helps me to know how to help you if I know what God's telling you what to do. So write it down. I will be able to encourage you, pray for you, all that. If there's another commitment you have to make, write it down there on the other side or, or check those things. Make sure I have your contact information. Or if you have a prayer request, I do pray for each of you every week. And for our Ravencrestors, if you would turn these, it was awesome. Last year, those who did, I got to pray for by name. The rest of you, I got to pray for by bulk. Um, so if I know who you are, it, I do. I pray for you every week, and I will. And, and, and uh, it's a great privilege that we have to get to pray for you. So, but if there's a specific way that I can pray for you, me and our staff, our pastors, we will be happy to, to lift you up before the Lord. And it's cool because the more specific our prayers are, the more specific the answers. And uh, it's just cool 
see God in our lives. Okay, so take this. In a couple of minutes, um, we're going to take our offering. What I want you to do is take these connection cards, and as the baskets are passed, just put them in there with your tithes and your offerings. And, uh, and then uh, we will finish up with one more song, and then we'll go eat chili. So uh, <laughs> let's pray. Father God, you are sovereign. You're in control. Everything, it, it fits into your plan, and we look at the world, and it seems like it's out of control. And Lord, I thank you for the peace of your, that we find in your word, the very truth, that this world is very much in control. And under control, because it's under your control. That you are so brilliant, you'll even use pain and wickedness for your gain and for our good. And that blows my mind because I'm not smart enough to figure how you could do that. But I'm grateful that you didn't ask me to be. You just asked me to trust you. And you've given me more than enough reason to do that. And so, Father, we're thankful for your sovereignty. We're grateful for that. And, Lord, in, in light of that sovereignty, in light of, of your love, and in light of your goodness, I pray your blessing over this congregation. And those here that your, your sovereign hand would... Would, would make itself known. I pray that you would reveal to us how to live in faith and faithfulness today. Lord, if we are partaking of the king's royal food and wine and defiling ourselves, God, I pray that you would bring that wonderful conviction from your Holy Spirit. Show us how we can walk and more faithfully to you. Thank you for your grace that it doesn't bring, that doesn't bring condemnation, but instead brings restoration. So, Father, I pray as you reveal these things, you, you also, Lord, help us to receive that grace, but also, Lord, on top of that, have the resolve necessary to live lives of true repentance. God, we want our faith to be respectable, so work in us and through us. Bless us with that, that we would make your name great, that our culture would have no option but to see how good you are by examining how good you are in us and through us. Now, Father, for these commitments that we've made, Help us to keep them in a way that doesn't breed legalism, but instead breeds life. And Father, I'm also going to pray, Father, for our, our commitments and our offerings and our tithes and all these things we bring to you. Father, these are expressions of love and also of faith. We're trusting you, God. So I pray that you use all of these things to build your kingdom in us and through us, Lord, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.